Amen. For those of you that are choosing to utilize our children's ministry, this would be the time to be able to take them. And and if you haven't checked them in already, you can check them in. You can certainly even check them in before the service if you choose to do that. Uh, And for those... uh, uh, those of you that are, that are hanging out in here, for the kids that are hanging out, we do have a children's bulletin. And so if you haven't grabbed a copy of that, uh, you can grab a copy of that as well. And that can be something that uh, is a talking point for you and your discipleship of your kids throughout the week. But we've been slowly going just through paragraph by paragraph of our confession. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at what our confession has to say about the Holy Scriptures, meaning that they summarize key uh, key scriptures, uh, and the scriptures testify about themselves. And so uh, last week I read through uh, the books that we would confess are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and preserved by the Holy Spirit of God. This morning I'm going to read a short section on what we um, confess is not a part of the inspired canon, and it's in paragraph 3 of chapter 1 of our confession. The books commonly called Apocrypha, if you're familiar with that, not being of divine inspiration are no part of the canon or rule of the Scripture and therefore are of no authority to the church of God nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. And so we want to be a people that are clear about what the Word of God is and be clear about the, what the Word of God is not. And so and that's ch- uh, paragraph 3 of chapter 1 of our confession. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6 is where we are. We have been going six weeks in this book, and my prayer is that you have been encouraged by it. Again, as we've been tracing, and we will see even more this morning, just God's providential hand uh, guiding the events, though we do not see God's name anywhere in this book. And for me, this is my favorite chapter of the book. Esther chapter 6 is my favorite chapter, and, and some of it, it's full of irony, and this is where I really begin to, this is where I think the defeat, the, the, real, the real meaningful defeat, there's a battle that's going to happen, which is, which is great in a, in a couple of chapters, but, the, uh, but this is where the, the real defeat happens, and, and I've labeled this the humiliation of Haman, and so if you've been following, his, he's been scheming to seek to to eradicate uh, the Jewish people. And so children, uh, Haman, is a, he's, he's a bad guy in, in this, this story, this true story. And, and not only does he want to take out all of the, the Jewish people, all of God's people, and, and um, not, only is he's got, not only is he God's enemy, but he wants to, um, to quickly get rid of uh, the man we've come to know as Mordecai, who, who may have been the one who uh, wrote this book. But we're going to look this morning at, at his humiliation and what I think is his ultimate um, defeat. It's the, the real defeat, if you will. And so I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. And then like each week, I'm going to kind of summarize, if you will, what we've read, make some notes along the way, and, uh, and then we'll work through our takeaways by God's grace together. But this is the word of the Lord. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders, and, and by the way, he doesn't strike me as someone that doesn't sleep well at night, right? On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, 
and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, right? Who sought to, to kill King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? It's a significant question. And Haman said to himself, right? We get a peek into his heart again, like last week. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king said to Haman, Sounds like a good idea. It's not what it says there, but he says, Hurry, take the robes and the horse of you as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. Devastating. So Hama took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Third time we see that phrase. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men, and I can't help but to think that that's some form of satire, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Incredible chapter. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and work through this together. God, thank you again for your word. God, I I thank you even for the irony of this passage, God, that, um, Lord, I think of the phrase, and I'm going to talk about it, just how you put your enemies to open shame, God, and that you preserve your covenant people. And so, Lord, we ask that you would encourage us in the gospel this morning, that you would help us to be motivated and optimistic about your kingdom expanding and your will and plan for the nations being accomplished, God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 2-4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. 
the Lord holds them in derision. Right? If we're paying attention to, to God's providential hand, as we have been doing throughout both the, as we went through the book of Ruth and as we're now going through the book of Esther, we would see, especially now here in Esther chapter 6, that Psalm 2-4 really is the framing of this chapter. It's what, what's going on cosmically right now. If we were to peek behind the curtain of the events here in Esther chapter 6, I could have easily called this sermon, for those of you who are Chronicles of Narnia fans, Aslan is on the move. Um, right, winter is beginning to to come to an end in the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in the kingdom of, some of your translations say Xerxes. Right? The, the weather is, is warming. The birds are beginning to chirp. Right? Ahasuerus, he doesn't see it, but, but Haman and his wife and his supposed wise man, they now know that they're, they're coming face to face with the king of kings. Right? And although we don't see that explicitly, it's felt. Right? For us as, as Christians, it's felt, it's pervasive all over this particular chapter. And as we see the Lord move, He does so, as I've already mentioned, with so much irony. So much irony in this chapter, right? This is something, again, if we were to laugh at the, just how ridiculous chapter 1 was when we, we looked at the, just the lavishness of Ahasuerus and how seriously he took himself and the, the, the edicts that he, he put forward about the freedom that people would have to drink in his kingdom, right? If we were laughing there, chapters 2 to 5, there's not a whole lot to smile about. But then chapter 6 breaks in and we see humor again. We see irony, divine irony, I would even call it, right? We open this chapter, the night of the events in chapter 5. So again, this narrative has, has picked up a lot, of, a lot of speed compared to the, uh, the last several chapters. And our text opens with the sleeplessness of the king, right? Sleep escaped King Ahasuerus, right? Now, now we, the readers, we know that the Lord is the one who kept the king awake, Matthew Henry, a Puritan and a commentator on the Bible, he said, God, whose gift is sleep, withheld it from King Ahasuerus. God, whose gift is sleep, he withheld it. He kept it. He made it escape. Xerxes here. And he did so, so that this king in his restlessness would command that the chronicles of his kingdom, not the inspired chronicles that we have in Scripture, but that he would have his, his chronicles of his kingdom and his reign in Babylon read to him, right? And, and so, kids, that's kind of like, I don't know, counting sheep or something, right? He, he, he wanted to get as bored as possible so that maybe sleep wouldn't escape him, right? But, but the king kept these records, and, and he kept these records. We don't even have to be reminded, really, of the events that we read about and worked through in chapter 2, particularly in verses 19 to 23, because the author of Esther just jumps in it right away and reminds us here in chapter 6 that the king recorded the account of Mordecai saving his life. Okay, that's, you know, just as he thought, man, these chronicles, the, the reading of the, just the mundane details, perhaps, about the kingdom, it's going to put me to sleep. But then he, he becomes even more alive, even more awake, because he remembered something 
He remembers that he's a debtor. He remembers that he owes a man his life. His life had been preserved by someone else, and gratitude and honor were never given to Mordecai. He never even said thank you. The king never even said thank you. And and if we remember the very next chapter after Mordecai saves King Ahasuerus' life, King Xerxes' life, we we kind of awkwardly get introduced to Haman in chapter 3. And at the same time that we get introduced to him, we learn that he gets this crazy promotion uh, to to the level of, say, a, a prime minister even. Right, something that we would have expected to happen to Mordecai for saving the king's life. It doesn't happen to him. It happens to this other guy. Mordecai was forgotten by the king. And we don't really understand why Mordecai was forgotten by the king. But now, in chapter 6, we see in the king's forgetfulness that, that the Lord was using Mordecai being neglected or forgotten about for the very purpose that we see here in this chapter. So after the king's reminded and he finds out that Mordecai had been forgotten by him and forgotten by his kingdom, he sends out one of his servants to to fetch Haman, who's on his way, okay, irony, he's on his way to speak to the king about Mordecai, but not about honoring Mordecai. He wants to make sure that Mordecai is is executed, he's done away with, right? So Haman, who was going to seek to put Mordecai to shame, is about to feel the full weight of the shame that he's been orchestrating in the shadows. Right? You reap what you sow. Right? So, so we get a peek again. When, when Haman comes in and he has audience with the king, we get, and again, it's a rare glimpse in, in the, this historical narrative here, we get a glimpse into the heart of Haman, and, and, and he learns that the king wants to honor someone, that the king delights in someone. And, and we, we see the author of Esther um, say, say this, Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Right, that's just how self-absorbed he's, he's man, th- this is, he's talking about me. I just show, this is going to be a great day. I'm going to get this guy killed. I'm going to, you know, get paraded in the in the streets. That's, that's what's going on. So he assumes that the king wants to do this to him. And honestly, based on the king promoting him seemingly out of nowhere in chapter 3, this isn't just a far-fetched assumption given the way that this kingdom works. But we see that Haman's enslaved to this idol uh, of, of self-importance. He, he lusts for power, for wealth, for stuff. He lusts for influence. And I think if he could take the, the throne away from the king, if he got a chance to do that, right? Because that's what that sort of kingdom produces those types of people, right? If he had an opportunity to take the, the, the crown away from the king, you better believe that he would do it like that. That Hominy, he takes himself too seriously. Right? And, and, and we, again, we see this, this idol, again, of self-importance, of, of wanting power and wealth and influence and control and, and to be the most important person and to be the person that's honored above all the other people. Right? He takes himself too seriously, and he takes what others think about him too seriously, which is why he's gotten into this 
this situation that he's of his own doing with with Mordecai. When I was thinking about just how seriously he took himself, I think this is what someone does that genuinely doesn't have gravitas. Right? People that don't have gravitas, that, that don't have any weight or seriousness, they, they tend to take themselves too seriously and expect other people to take themselves too seriously. So Haman, he's a, he's a lightweight who wishes he were a heavyweight. And, and he's probably somebody who rarely, if ever, laughed. Right? So we get this peek into his heart, and it's immediately followed up with Haman having to speak up and answer the king and pour out all of his desires about what he thinks uh, should happen to the person that the king would honor, right? He's, he's, given, he's given the desires of his heart. He's spilling that over to the king. And, and this plan includes dressing this person in the king's clothing. It includes putting him on one of the king's horses. And not just that, but he says that he should be delivered by one of the king's most noble princes. And after that, the man the king delights in should be publicly honored. We're not going to do this in a closet. We're not going to do this behind closed doors. We need to make sure that there is a public acknowledgement in the town square as it relates to the king finding pleasure in this particular individual. Haman thinks whoever that may be. So to me, it's as if God is speaking through Haman in order that he may bring Haman to his ultimate demise, right? To to bring about the worst thing that could happen to Haman, to the destination that his God of self-importance leads him. So the king takes his advice, as he's been doing all along. Right, and he reveals to Haman that it's Mordecai, that Mordecai is the one in which he honors, delights to honor. And then he says, you know, Haman, you're the one that's going to oversee this whole process. Like you're going to do this, right? And imagine how big of a blow, how devastating this is to this guy's pride, to this guy's ego, to, every, to his very God that he bows down before and worships. It's a fatal blow. It causes that God to crumble to the ground. Naaman came in to ask for Mordecai's death. He probably got giddy just thinking about it and even thinking that the king was going to honor him. Again, there's just pure irony here. And all that's left is shame. Haman the Amalekite the hater of God, the hater of God's people, is now focused to honor the man that he despises in a very public way, right? Haman must publicly honor the man who publicly dishonored him, which is even more humiliating. So he leads Mordecai on the king's horse, dressed in the king's clothes, and says throughout the entire kingdom that the king delights in Mordecai. Now pause for a moment. Okay, because we, I think we're even now also getting a glimpse, not just into the forgetfulness of the king as it relates to Mordecai, but even the, the hesitancy of Esther in the last chapter. Why, why it was that she was inclined to wait to bring her request before the king. It's not that Esther knew about any of this happening, right? That she's actually orchestrating Haman wanting to hang Mordecai and going, you know, going in to see the king about it. But she felt that she needed to wait. She was inclined 
toward waiting, right? And, and now we, we see that there's no way, already here in chapter 6, we see that there's no way that the king could not grant her request after publicly honoring Mordecai. Now, if the whole kingdom was sent into confusion by the wicked edict that had gone out about exterminating the Jewish people, they really had to be confused when the man known as Mordecai the Jew, right, is being called the one whom the king delights to honor, right? But remember, the king doesn't know that he signed the death warrant of the the Jewish people. He doesn't know that he signed the, the death warrant of Mordecai himself. He never bothered to investigate because he never really cared, Right? And this is just more irony here. He kind of looks schizophrenic, if you will, doesn't he? Right? The, the king honors the one he said he was going to kill. So our chapter ends with Haman not just walking home, but our text said hurrying home. Like he's got to get home. And, and not just hurrying home, but he's, he's disguised himself so that people aren't stopping him in the streets and laughing, maybe? With what's happened, right? He's embarrassed. He feels shame, right? The, the proud man's God didn't, it didn't deliver for him, right? He's been humiliated. And he, along with his wife and his supposed wise men, they see now Haman's certain doom. It's as clear as day, right? His wife prophetically says, you're not going to beat Mordecai. You're going to fall before Mordecai. And while they were still talking, one of the king's eunuchs shows up, interrupts him, and says it's time to come to Esther's feast. All right, a feast that he would have been excited about attending, except now he goes in sorrow. But he still doesn't know that Esther's Jewish. So at the close of this chapter, his pride's devastated. He sees his plan is foiled, but he has no clue what the banquet even holds for him. All right, this is, this is what we call poetic justice, if you were looking to label it anything. One commentator called this Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. (laughs) Uh As I I was reading one commentary, and I just wanted to read this to you because I thought that this kind of helped sum up this chapter pretty well, and then we'll go into our takeaways. He said this, he said, even in a book like Esther, where God's name is never mentioned, and the characters in the story, including his own people, including God's own people, do their best to ignore his existence. He refuses to be written out of the script. Between the lines and between the scenes, out of focus and incognito, the Lord continues to work to accomplish all his holy will. Esther 6 is a perfect case study in God's way of working all things together for the good of his people, those who he's called according to his purpose, Romans eight twenty-eight. So a, a few takeaways for us. And, and I've listed these in your, your, your worship guide, but we're going to spend just a little bit of time fleshing them out this morning. The first, the first is this. God put his enemies to open shame in Jesus. God put his enemies to open shame in Jesus, right? We see the humiliation of Haman in this chapter. Right? It, there's no doubt about it that he has been put to public shame, that he's been put to open shame. Shame, right? He had to walk around the town square, right? With, with Mordecai dressed in the king's clothes, riding the king's horse. And Haman had to utter the words. He had to speak the very words of defeat, which means that he had to announce the king's pleasure in Mordecai. 
And while we see the death of Haman in the next chapter, and again, I've said this already, this is the defeat here. This is the defeating moment. This is the fatal blow, if you will. This is, this is why I think in, in many ways Esther chapter 6 is, is, is kind of the, uh, the big climax in the story. There are other very eventful things as we're going to see happen in this book, but this is, a, this is critical. Right? Everything is stripped away in this moment. Right? We, we thought things were headed in one direction, and then boom, we change course. Right? And, and, and so while we see the death of Haman, this is the defeat. Right? His self-importance is stripped away. His power is gone. His ability to manipulate is gone. His plan to exterminate the entire Jewish people is even clearly defeated. Right? It, it's obvious even to his wife and friends who tell him that Mordecai is the one who prevails over him. Right? They, they, they speak that to Haman. Right? And, and, and so God puts his enemies to open shame. He puts his enemies to open shame. And, and, and if this is true, certainly of Haman, this is definitely true of our spiritual enemy as well. Right? Our enemy, the devil, right? Satan, the accuser. He, he's a devourer. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He, he's the thief that, that seeks to steal and kill and destroy John 10, 10. But God in Christ Jesus, right? God, God in his kindness, in his graciousness, in his mercy, he's put Satan and Satan's kingdom to open shame. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, he, speaking of God, disarmed the rulers and the authorities meaning our spiritual enemies is what, is what the Apostle Paul is targeting here. Okay, God disarmed our spiritual enemies and put them to open shame, to public shame, by triumphing over them in Him. In who? In Christ. In Christ. Right? Just as Haman is, hasn't made his way to the gallows in our story, Right? So our enemy, the devil, is, is waiting to be cast into the lake of fire. But just as Haman was put to open shame, so has Satan and his kingdom been put to open shame through, through, the, life, through the humiliation of Christ, through the life, through the death, through the burial, through the bodily and eternal resurrection, and through the ascension of Jesus Christ. He's put Satan to open shame. He's put Satan's kingdom to open shame, all right? Christ, he came into this world, our world, this actual world, right? This isn't some ethereal stuff that we're talking about. God put on flesh and he came into this world. And when he came into this world, he brought his kingdom with him. He didn't leave the kingdom behind. He brought his kingdom with him, right? And Christ and his kingdom, they're inseparable from one another, Right? Where one goes, the other follows. Right? Where Christ is preached, his kingdom goes. His kingdom conquers. Matthew 12, 28 and 29 says, But if by the Spirit of God, and this is Christ speaking, if by the Spirit of God I, is, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God, and he's speaking to his critics here, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Right? If, if, if it's the Lord that it, by the Spirit of God is casting out demons, then it's clear that the kingdom of God has come with him to this planet. Right? It's clear that the kingdom of God has come here. And he says, or how can, right? he poses this question, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Right? Jesus is the one who bound the strong man who's Satan. And he did this in his first advent. Jesus plundered Satan's house, which means he set captives free. He, he delivered us from darkness and he transferred us into his marvelous light. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Which, kids, means that Jesus slayed the dragon. He slayed the dragon. He, he crushed the head of the serpent, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. And the kingdom that Christ brought with him is shrinking the kingdom of Satan because Christ put him to open shame. And we've got to remember that. We have to remember that. It's a glorious thing to recall. That's a glorious thing to live in. So what's happening now? What's happening now? It's the question. If you're taking notes, you can see this here. And kids, if you're following along, you can, you can copy this from your parents' worship God. But we see that Jesus is the one in whom the king delights to honor. Jesus is the one in whom the king delights to honor. I love that phrase used three times in this chapter. Right? And so I'm borrowing that from our text. But we see the parade of Mordecai in this chapter, because Mordecai prevailed over Haman in this chapter. All right, and if that, if that is what happens, as, as Haman is put to, to shame, what has happened since Jesus put Satan to open shame? What's happening now since Jesus has put Satan to open shame? Right, I, I would argue that there's, there's parading in the streets. There has been for over... 2,000 plus years. We're going to the city squares, to the town squares of every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and we're announcing God's pleasure in King Jesus. That is the message that we're heralding. Jesus is truly the one who deserves honor, and we are announcing that it is Christ who put Satan to open shame. We're announcing the coming and the spreading of the kingdom of God. We're announcing the defeat of darkness and the coming ultimate slaying of the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil. Right? If, if the fatal blow was made to Satan 2,000 plus years ago, again, we're, we're announcing not only that, but we're announcing the final blow. We're announcing the final blow is coming. Jesus really, he really is the one in whom the Father delights to honor. Matthew 3, verse 17, the baptism of Christ. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Apostle Paul, preaching Christ, said this to the church of Philippi. God, therefore God has highly exalted him, right, exalted Christ. And he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, right? every knee shall bow on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Right? The Father is well-pleased in Jesus Christ, and to be in Jesus, covered in the blood of Jesus, is to be grafted in, gloriously grafted into that pleasure. Right? Our triumphant Jesus is the one who's exalted. He's the one whose name is above every other name. There's no equal. There's no competition. He's the one in which every single person ever created would bow before him, not just in heaven, not just on the earth, but even under the earth as well. Right? Jesus is the one whom God delights to honor. And he's a good king with a good kingdom. So, point three, our final point this morning. Kids, you can, you can jot this down too. We have every reason to be a hopeful people. Right? When we look around and we see all the bad things that are happening, we can still be hopeful. We can still be optimistic. Right? Christians should be the most optimistic people on the planet. Because we've been saved from the penalty of our sin. Right? Because we've been saved from the power of sin. And because we have this book that God in his kindness has preserved. That the Holy Spirit of God wrote. Right? He spoke it into existence. And not just did that, but he's preserved it for us so that we can see stories. Things that have actually happened. And man, just when things look like they couldn't get any worse. When all hope is lost. And we see our masterful storyteller break in. And we see the redemptive narrative that runs from Old Testament to New Testament. And we see that God is a seeker and saver and sustainer of his people. And that the place isn't spinning out of control. That the place is being brought to obedience. Certainly kicking and screaming but it's being brought to obedience, being brought into subjection of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so this chapter is a great turning. It's the great turning, right? The darkness really begins to lift. The threat of imminent doom is beginning to be reversed, and God's the one orchestrating all of this light. He's orchestrating all of this light in the midst of darkness, even though his name's not mentioned in this book at all. All right, I love Psalm 139, starting with verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Right? Many of you in this room this morning are in darkness, and you've been there for a long time. Right? Maybe you're wrestling with a sin. Maybe you're suffering immensely. Maybe it's a combination of the two. And again, like this book, you feel that God's been silent. Right? You feel isolated. You feel lonely. And you frankly feel abandoned, perhaps. But the book of Esther, it reminds us this is not true. That this isn't true. That, that the way that we're feeling and, and the, the, the conclusions that we could come to based on our, our feelings... Again, man, that God has abandoned me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be feeling like this. We can look 
to the book of Esther and be reminded that's not true. And in, in, in Esther, we see again the breaking of the dawn. All right, we see that the darkness even is as light to the Lord because he himself is light. And when we look at a sacred book and when we remember that, that can genuinely inform our very circumstances. And I would also point you toward the darkest moment in all of human history. It was the crucifixion, the death, the three days of silence. Everything for the disciples in those moments felt hopeless. Felt hopeless. Everything perhaps even felt meaningless. And yet as despair was setting in and, and becoming an, uh, an unwelcomed yet familiar sort of friend, if you will. Just when that was beginning to set in, Sunday morning came, right? Sunday morning came, a tomb was rolled away, and the world would never be the same as a result of that. Right? We have every reason as Christians to hope, no matter our circumstances in life. Right? G.K. Chesterton once said that we have a Savior who knows his way out of the grave, right? And we need to remember that when we're tempted to despair. All right, so, so this morning, remember, God puts his enemies to open shame. Right, remember that, internalize that. Remember that Jesus is the one in whom the king delights to honor. And as a result of that, we have every reason as Christians living in this world, as broken as it is, we have every reason to be hopeful because our king is alive eternally and no one's going to thwart his reign or his rule. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for time in your word. We thank you that, God, for dark books like this, God, that oftentimes can ring true, Lord, in some shape, form, or fashion to our very circumstances, God. And, And so I thank you for the intensity of this book and how it can showcase, Lord, that that you do accomplish all your holy will. And God, that you do work all things together for the good of those that you've called. And so we give you all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.